So I'd, I'd like for you to join me, if you don't mind, in Matthew 26, where Merv read for us a few minutes ago. And we'll pretty much, uh, we'll maybe turn to one other passage, but pretty much stay right there in, near the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matt, chapter 26. I'm glad you're here. Good to be able to worship with you. I'm, I'm excited I get to share this message with you. We've just taken communion together, so we're going to be reflecting on what we just did uh, but we're also going to be reflecting about how we'll do it next Sunday and the week after that and the week after that. I believe that this is an incredibly important thing. This is not a completely coincidental timing for this. If you're following along in our chronological reading, you know that we read Matthew 26. Uh, it's it's part, of our, part of our reading. This is about where we are. We're going to come back tonight at 5. I hope you'll plan to be back and we're going to reflect a little bit more on uh, the Gospels and how they teach us about the life of Jesus. So we'll, we'll come back and do that this evening. But I want to focus in on this, this, this seminal, as I think Bill used that word, and I agree with that completely, this seminal moment, this seminal event in the definition and identification of Christianity. This is who we are. One of the difficulties, one of the obstacles about taking communion every week, which I believe we should, but one of the obstacles is that it can become rote, you know? If we're not careful, it can become just something we do because we do it, because we've always done it that way. It's like anything that we do repetitively. It, it can lose its meaning, you know? It can come become just, just something. And we can do, I do, I do this. You probably do it as well. Sometimes I can take the elements, <coughs> and I can be thinking about any number of things for that next few minutes instead of what I ought to be thinking about. You know, we can, it can kind of lose its, its meaning. I want you to go with me in your minds to this upper room. In fact, we'll even start just briefly a little bit before that. This is Thursday. I want to set the stage for you so, know, so you know where we are in the life of Jesus. This is Thursday of what is often called Passion Week. He entered the city on Sunday to the acclaim of the crowds, palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna, children were crying out. He went into the temple that week, he threw out the money changers, he taught, he went to the Mount of Olives and he preached a pretty extensive sermon recorded in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew. On Thursday, which is called the first day of unleavened bread, I'll talk a little bit about the background of this, because I want us to understand the significance of what's going on right now. We don't, some of you know about Passover. You know, we don't observe Passover. Though in the spring of the year, you'll notice if you, if you look carefully, or if you listen in the Birmingham area, there will be invitations that you may receive to attend a Seder meal. Some people I know have done that to help them appreciate the significance of the background of the Lord's Supper. It's called a Seder. It's a, a Jewish observance even to this day. The background of that is Passover. This Thursday, they regarded days, by the way, they regarded days as beginning at sundown, so around 6 p.m. So what we would call Thursday began at 6 p.m., the first day of unleavened bread would have begun at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, what we would call, you know, Wednesday evening. It was actually the beginning of Wednesday for them. That was the first day of unleavened bread. I mention that because I want you to know that, that the background of this goes back to the book of Exodus. 
So let's talk about that just for a minute so we understand. And, and by the way, let me, let me make sure we're at the same spot in the text. Matthew 26, I actually want to go back beyond what, what I asked Merv to read, back, back up to verse 17. And so you, we set the stage for what he's about to do on the first day. You with me there, Matthew 26, 17? Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So this is what that's about. The first day of unleavened bread, it was originally a seven-day celebration beginning on this, what we would call Wednesday evening, and going for seven days. It had evolved into an eight-day celebration. By the time of Jesus, the Jews would observe this feast for eight days. Now, the first day began at 6 p.m. on Wednesday. And so Jesus, this is probably talking about what we would call Thursday morning, the first day of unleavened bread. Now, here's the background. The book of Exodus, God's people are in Egyptian slavery, right? They had been there for some 400 years. They had cried out to God. God finally answered their prayers. He sent them a deliverer whose name was Moses. And Moses went to the court of Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, I'm not going to do it. And through a series of plagues, God showed Egypt that he was God and that the Egyptian pantheon of gods were no gods at all, culminating in the 10th plague that God sent on Egypt. And that was that if you were not obedient to God, if you were not faithful to God and, and gone through the prepared ritual, there would be the death of the firstborn throughout the land of both humanity and animals. Part of that preparation was, on the first day of the week of unleavened bread, as it became, they would remove all leaven. In fact, prior to that, they would remove all leaven from the, from the house. No yeast at all in the house. And then on the first day of this week of unleavened bread it would commemorate from then on the fact that when they fled Egypt, when they got out of Egypt really quickly, you wouldn't have time to, to sit around and let bread to rise. And so the leavens being removed from the house signified the rapidity with which they left. You know, they needed to get out of there pretty quickly. That's where, that's where the unleavened idea comes from. Okay? So first day of unleavened bread, that's what it's talking about. At 6 p.m. that evening on Thursday would be what is called Passover. Now, what happened in Egypt was, God said, you prepare your houses in a certain way. You take a lamb, a male lamb of the first year, without blemish, and they would sacrifice that lamb. They would cook the lamb whole, they would take the blood, and they would put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house, and they would put it above the door. And when the angel came through the land, and the death of the firstborn would follow, the angel would as it were, look down and see the blood on the doorpost and the blood above the door, and the angel would pass over that house and there would be no death. That's what happened in Exodus 12. You go back and read Exodus 12, you read all about it. But, you know, they knew this very well. This is a big deal for them. They had celebrated this for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they did it every spring. They would have the eight-day-long feast, and they would have Passover as a part of that week of unleavened bread. And uh, it was a big deal to them. They would observe it by eating of the lamb. They would eat, um, they would uh, take the bread. They would have wine, which we'll talk about in a minute through different stages of this meal. It was a huge deal. It celebrated what God had done for them in Egypt. So that's what it's talking about when it says that this is the first day of unleavened bread, verse 17. They said, uh, Jesus said, where are we going to eat the Passover, verse 17? And then he tells them, go into the city. In verse 19, it says, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, 
and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, that would have been, again, the beginning of Thursday, Thursday evening, 6 o'clock or so. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. That's verse 20. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him after, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So, we're not going to talk about all that. That's a big, big part of the text. But Jesus, at this solemn meal, this solemn and yet celebratory meal, Jesus interrupts it to talk about his betrayer. Now, all sorts of things had been leading up to this moment. Jesus had told them, we said to this last Sunday, if you were here, there were three very definitive times where Jesus stopped the disciples and said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed there and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be resurrected the third day. He stopped them at several moments. They didn't understand. They were upset. They tried to stop him. They lobbied for position in the kingdom. All sorts of responses. But on this Thursday night, they finally get to Jerusalem and Jesus stops this celebratory meal, this Passover meal with a lamb, with the bitter herbs, with the unleavened bread, with the cups of wine. And he stops the meal and he says, one of you is going to betray me. We read from Luke's gospel account that they were arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom at this meal. We read from John's account that Jesus, after he finished the meal, he got down on his knees and he washed their feet. So lots of stuff happening at this meal. But the background of all of this is Passover. All right, this event, this greatest event in Jewish history of God delivering them from slavery. It's just important for you to understand what they were thinking when they celebrated this meal. They did this every spring without exception for the last hundreds and hundreds of years. It had been instituted in some 1500 BC. You know, we're talking a long time this meal had been celebrated every spring for them. And it is at that meal where Jesus stops. And he says, this is not the same Passover you have taken ever since you were little kids. This is not that Passover meal. I am elevating it. I'm going to teach you something very important about what's happening here. So they prepared the Passover. Just that backdrop is crucial to understand this. By the way, 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul is going to write about this later on. And he, and he calls Jesus the Paschal Lamb. That's a big deal. Because the Paschal Lamb was the one that was slain and whose blood they would then take and put on the doorposts of the house and above the door. That's the Paschal Lamb. Paul, later reflecting on this, says that Jesus is our Passover Lamb. There's just all sorts of symbolism here pointing to the significance of the moment. Okay, but you read on in the text, in the text that actually uh, Merv read for us a few minutes ago when Jesus stops them and he says, this is my body. So he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. What does he mean? <clears throat> A couple months ago, we studied... In uh, John 6, you remember Jesus having a conversation with some of the, uh, some of the people and he said that you need to, you're going to eat my body and drink my blood. And they were all confused by that, rightly so. They didn't know what in the world he's talking about. I think we get a glimpse of that here when he says, take, eat, this is my body. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Christians have been, de 
kind of divided over this, exactly what this means. This is my body. Is he speaking merely symbolically? Is he speaking in some sort of physical way? And there developed this teaching that, you know, when, it's, when it's, um, this bread, this, this wine is blessed by the priest, that it actually becomes in some sense the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. You know, you've heard that before. I don't want to react so much to that, that that I allow this to mean something like a mere symbol, because it's more than a mere symbol. When he says, take, eat, this is my body, he does mean something about symbolism here, right? But he means more than that. This is a, this is a very important moment when we take the bread. We're doing more than just taking a symbol. I don't want to minimize this at all. I think there's a, there's a hint of mystery here because nobody knows fully what he means when he says this. I don't think the disciples knew then. I don't think they know fully later. I don't think we truly know exactly. But we know that when we take the bread, it is a sacred moment because we are participating in the body of Jesus. We are, <clears throat> we are joining with him. We are being united with him in his death and in his bodily crucifixion. It is a sacred moment. He says, take, eat, this is my body. He doesn't merely say this represents my body, though that is in essence, or not in essence, that is in part at least what he means. Right? Take, eat, this is my body. I'm not, I'm not creeping over into something, I don't know, that I'm not, I'm not trying to teach you that this is actually his body in a physical sense. But I am wanting you to take this seriously, that, that this is a big deal what Jesus says here, and he's not removing all mystery from it. He could have said this represents my body, but that's not what he says. He says this, in fact, he's probably, well, he is speaking in Aramaic, and he would have simply said, there would be no linking verb there, he would have simply said, this, my body. That's the way it would have been worded. This, my body. The disciples were probably confused by that. But of course, looking back on it, we now know that he is saying his body would be pierced and his body would literally die on the cross. And this bread is that body. It's a big deal when we take communion. I'm reminded that I need to be very careful that I'm not thinking about unsacred things. That, that we're not, as a church, thinking about where we're going for lunch or this game yesterday or you know, what's going to happen Monday night or whatever. This is a sacred moment. This is a big deal for us as Christians. And uh, all sorts of things are going on. So he, so he says, take, eat, this is my body. And then verse 27, he says, this is my blood. Verse 28. Drink of it, all of you. He took this cup. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to I do something with you for just a minute. You don't have to turn here, but I want to show you something from the book of Exodus. When, um, when they observe, this is, this, is, this is important. <clears throat> when they observed Passover at the time of Jesus, all right? They had developed a way of doing it. They took four cups of wine. Now, they didn't drink all the cups. Like, not everybody there drank four full cups of wine. But what they did is they had four cups, four stages in this, where they would have a cup, the first cup, and it'd be passed around, and people would drink of it. Then they would have a second cup, and then a third cup, 
and then it would conclude with a fourth cup. And that was it, the last one. Now, at each one of those drinkings of the cups of wine, they would repeat a part of the book of Exodus, verses 6 and 7. Now listen to this. There are several statements here, and they would say them. And I'm going to tie this in with what's going on here in Matthew 26 in a second. Listen to this. Exodus 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's cup number one. So they would take the first cup, they would pass it around, and whoever's presiding at the table would read this. He would say, usually the father or the grandfather, maybe whoever the patriarch of the family is, he would read this. He would say, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and they would drink cup number one in the celebration of Passover. And then he would read this, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and they would drink cup number two. And then, and it is almost certain that it is during this third cup where Jesus takes this, this particular cup that we're reading in Matthew 26 would have been the third cup, and the, the one presiding at the table, at the meal, would read this, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And they would take the third cup. Now, if we're right on this, if I'm right on this, they've already taken the first two cups, and they take, Jesus takes the third cup, and as he passes it around, he quotes Exodus 6 and verse 6, and he says, And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And they passed the cup around, but then he said, This cup now represents another kind of redemption. It is not merely the redemption from Egyptian slavery that this cup represents, but rather it is your being freed from something even worse than that. And he's talking about our freedom, our recreation in Jesus, right? He's anticipating what is going to be the next day, okay? Now, I mentioned that there are four cups. I'm going to talk about what I believe is the fourth cup in just a second, but just stay with me. I believe that at this moment, he takes this third cup and he says, after having read, as they would always do, from Exodus 6, the part where God says, I will redeem you, and he said, this is now my blood. Now, I'll come back to the fourth cup in a second. But for now... You see the significance of that, obviously. We take, I mean, you know, everybody here knows that when we take the cup, it in some sense represents his blood. But man, there's just so much there. It's, it's, it's reflecting that paschal lamb of Exodus. It's, uh, it's, it's the third cup where, they, where God would say, I will redeem you and I'm going to you know, buy you out of slavery. And Jesus says, this represents something even bigger than that, that I am offering you redemption, freedom, real freedom. This is my blood, which is given for you, which is for the forgiveness of sins. If you're still with me in, uh, in Matthew 26, look at verse 29. Here is where I think Jesus alludes to. I can't prove this, all right? I can't prove this. I just think it's true. Verse 29, notice what Jesus says. 
I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I believe what happens here is that Jesus does not drink the fourth cup with them. I believe that in the four cup stage of the Passover, he takes the third one and he says, this is my blood which is going to offer you full redemption. And then he stops and he says, I will not drink. I will not drink that fourth cup. I believe that's the implication here. I'm not going to drink that fourth cup until I drink it with you in the kingdom. I am not going to complete this Passover celebration until I drink it with you in the kingdom. I think what Jesus is doing here is he is helping them to see that this meal on Thursday night is incomplete and it'll be incomplete, incomplete until Sunday. This is Thursday. He's crucified on Friday. He's in the tomb Friday night and all day Saturday and early Sunday morning. He comes out of the grave alive again and he meets with his disciples that day and he eats and drinks and he takes communion with them on that day and he completes the celebration. Would you turn, I, asked, I told you I wouldn't skip around too much, but I would like you to see this in Luke 24. Luke 24. <clears throat> last, uh, last chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Look at this with me. This is on, this is on Sunday, okay? This is, so we're, we're, Matthew 26, we're Thursday night, you know? He's crucified on Friday, resurrected early Sunday morning. So Luke 24 is talking to us about that day. This is, this is that Sunday, the day he was resurrected. And if you look in the text, <clears throat> verse 28, Jesus encounters these two disciples. They're going home to Emmaus, which is a village not too far from Jerusalem. And he comes up to them, and he doesn't allow them to recognize him. They knew him, but they did not recognize him at this point. So verse 28 says, they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was if he were going farther, farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now look, listen to this language in verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Now if you hear that language there, that is Lord's Supper language. That is Passover language. It is the same, almost the same wording that Luke uses a couple of chapters earlier when he's telling us about the Last Supper. So it says, He took the bread. He's at table. He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized Him. And he vanished from their sight. And he said, and they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Verse 35, then they told, they went to the, back to Jerusalem and they got, the other, they got the apostles together and they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread, which is a wording that is used throughout the New Testament to talk about communion. Here's what I want you to see here. He takes this Last Supper with them on Thursday night. 
He drinks the three cups. He says, I'm not going to drink this with you again until I take it with you in the kingdom. Three days later, Sunday, he meets these two disciples and he takes bread. He's at table with them. He takes bread. He breaks it. He blesses it. He gives it to them. And their eyes are opened and they see him. See, one of the things here, one of the things I want you to remember, communion matters for so many different reasons. But one of the most important is, it is in that moment, it is in that moment where God does something special for us and our eyes are opened and we're able to see Jesus in a way that we previously haven't seen him. That is why if you're in the habit of neglecting the table, and some of you might be, you come when it's convenient for you, but you don't come regularly maybe. You don't come to, to the table with us every Sunday. If that is your habit, you know what you're neglecting yourself of. You don't know Jesus like you should. Let's, let's just be real with what Jesus is teaching us here. They came together regularly to take communion. And it's more than just, hey, I, got a, I punched my ticket. I took communion. I'm good to go. This is a moment where God reveals himself to his people. Their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread. That's why in Hebrews 10, 25, it says, don't neglect a regular assembly of the people. Don't do that. Not because you're punching some ticket. Not because it's some, some sort of requirement. You come because you want to know Jesus more. And in the eating of the bread and in the, in the drinking of the cup, he reveals himself to his people. And so when we do this like we should, with our hearts and open minds, God's Spirit works in His church and through the communion, and He helps us to see Him. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that's what these texts are teaching us. Jesus becomes known to us in the taking of the fourth cup, as it were, in the eating of the bread, in the taking of the meal. Now, I know I don't have time to talk about this, let me just allude to this. 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Paul is writing about this. Uh, and, and, he, and he's leaning heavily. His, his account of the communion is a lot like Luke's. And so it's very similar to Luke's. Um, and what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11 is he's dealing with a divided church. And he says the answer to your problems is in communion. And, the, and communion for them had actually become a way of dividing. They were, the rich were neglecting the poor. They were divided. They weren't, weren't letting some people come to the meal. And so it was a big deal. And Paul says, what, what ought to be a source of unity has become for you a source of division. So one of the reasons why we take communion every week is we want to be reminded that we are one body. We're one body. We're all, we look different. We're different background, different personalities, all that. But this is one church. And not only that, but we're drinking and we're eating with believers from all over the world. There are people in, you know, there, there are people meeting in private apartments in China right now they're doing it quietly. They're do, doing it kind of secretly because the Chinese government in some places is cracking down on Chinese people. Now, people coming from other countries are, uh, um, are able to worship and worship pretty openly, but there are Chinese believers right now who are taking communion in secret places. There are fellow Christians in North Korea right now. There are Christians in Syria and Iraq and Iran and Egypt and we know people in the Philippines and Peru and Tanzania and Guyana. We're taking communion with them. We're doing it in solidarity with God's people in different kinds of backgrounds all over the world. People who look like us and who don't. Who talk like us and who don't. They come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. 
but we're taking communion with them. This is a uniting moment for us in communion. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11. It brings his people together. I know we've already taken communion today, but I hope that maybe next week when we take it again together, some of these thoughts will help us to do it in ways that deepen the meaning for us, that we'll drink that fourth cup, that we'll take that bread, and Jesus will become known to us in a way that maybe he hasn't been before, and that we'll be reminded that we're taking communion with believers all over the world. It draws his people together. If you're not a Christian this morning, um, man, we want to eat at the table with you. We do. Jesus wants to eat at the table with you. He invites you to the table. He invites you to come and sit down with him and feast with him, but he wants you to trust in who he is. You, the, the table doesn't mean anything to you. It really doesn't have that meaning to you until you first submit to him and say to him, I want you to be my Lord and once you believe that, and once you obey him, and once you become a follower of Jesus, you can sit down at that table and, and take of it in a way that is meaningful. It'll change your life. God, God changes people at the table. You trust in him, you're baptized into Christ. All these things we're talking about go back to the cross. You die, you're buried, you're resurrected from the water, you're immersed into Jesus, imitating what he did on the cross. And then every Sunday... Every Sunday that you're able, you come back and once again, you go back to the cross. You go back to the cross. You go back to the cross. And Jesus becomes known to you more and more and more as you come to the table. We invite you today on his behalf to become a Christian. Maybe you need to come back to him today uh, because you've neglected the table. You've neglected him. And you want to come back and say, Lord, I, I want to be back at the table again. I want to be back with you again. Let's stand and let's sing. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come now.